Welcome. I am your host, Emily, and this is Stay Tuned, supporting Transition Age Youth. Thanks for tuning in to listen to our very first episode. This is a new podcast designed to be run by young adults with mental health conditions for young adults with mental health conditions. Today, I'm going to be introducing myself and our very first guest, Dr. Marianne Davis. This podcast is brought to you by the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research at UMass Chan Medical School, Department of Psychiatry, and in partnership with our research sponsor, the National Institute for Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. Alrighty, so I'm your host, Emily, and I am so happy to be here hosting the first episode of this podcast. I'm a research coordinator here at the Transitions ACR. And our hope for this podcast is to reach other young adults living with mental health conditions and talk about their lived experiences, their struggles, their journeys, recoveries, as well as interviewing experts about education, employment, and career services available to them. Our research center focuses on ways to improve mental health services for young adults and to enhance the engagement of young adults in school and work activities. And our goal with this podcast is to bring those ideas to you from the perspective of other young adults. But that's enough about me. So let's introduce today's guest, Dr. Marianne Davis. Marianne is the director of the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research and the Implementation Science and Practice Advances Research Center, also known as ISPARC. Housed within the psychiatry department at UMass Chan Medical School, trained as a research psychologist, Dr. Davis is here today to talk with us about how she helped build the field of transition age youth and young adult mental health services. Marianne, would you mind giving our listeners a quick little overview of who you are and a short preview of how you ended up in this work? Sure. And thank you, Emily. I feel honored to be our first guest. This is wonderful. So who I am, uh, sort of professionally, I am, as you said, a research psychologist. I got clinical training, but that was in the service of being a research psychologist. So I'm not a licensed clinician. Um, and I am a professor here in the medical school. I've been here since 1995, which is a really long time. Um, and I feel very privileged to be the director of the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research, um, as well as a director for, for iSpark. And let's see about uh, how I ended up doing this work briefly. Um, I was inspired in, at a research conference in the year after I completed my clinical internship. I was at the University of South Florida's uh, APA clinical internship program, and they held an annual conference uh, that was referred to briefly as the Children's Tampa Conference. And uh, that year following completion of my internship, I was working for a children's mental health agency in Boston to try to develop some research capacities there. And they had a, a panel on young adult outcomes of youth who had been served in uh, public mental health or special education services. And paper after paper was just drawing this abysmal picture of people really struggling, young people really struggling um, to, to essentially move on into their adult life successfully. And that's essentially where my interest got initiated in transition AGs. Um, and there's been sort of a long and winding path since then, but that's, that's where it initiated. It was really, I was very, very much struck by those findings and um, felt like there was something I might be able to do uh, that potentially could help. That is incredible. And for many of the audience, I actually get to work with Marianne, which is very exciting. And this is the first time I will ever be hearing her story. So uh, this is a huge treat for everybody. Um, 
That's incredible, Marianne. So how about we, we kind of take it back to the beginning. So could you take us back to the very beginning of your story? How did your journey into research begin in general? <laughs> I have a very winding path into research. Um, so essentially, as an undergraduate, I, uh, I went to college for, for one semester and then quit. I was at Worcester State University right nearby. We are in Worcester um, and uh, got to a point where I didn't know what I wanted to do with my, with my college degree. Uh, our family was struggling a bit financially. And I said, you know what, why don't you just go work for a while? Um, and maybe figure some things out, um, which I think a lot of people can think about how that can sometimes be difficult to step off a, a path that you think is what you're supposed to be doing and, and try something else. Um, and uh, so I did. I worked for a couple of years. And when I went back to college, realizing that I wanted to do something, I wasn't quite sure what I had taken. Uh, I transferred to UMass out in Amherst. And one of the first courses I took there was on animal behavior. And it just completely captured my interest. Um, and I talked to the professor and I wondered, you know, hey, if this is what I wanna do, um, you know, what should I be doing? And first of all, he explained that people kind of do animal behavior as professors in universities. So I should get a doctorate so that I could do that. Um, and then like, here are some undergraduate classes you could take as well. So I, I pursued that. Um, did a fairly non-traditional degree at, uh, at UMass. It was the bachelor's degree in individual concentration where you could design a major for yourself with a lot of faculty oversight if what you were interested in didn't exist in the majors that were there. So I ended up uh, developing one that sort of merged everything about animal behavior with human behavior um, and wanted to look at that from an evolutionary perspective. So that's kind of where I went and then got into a a psychology program at Emory University to study non-human primate behavior. Um, and I was mostly interested in, I was interested in sort of psychobiology, sort of how biology influences behavior. Um, and sort of the person that I was my mentor there, who's Kim Wallen, was a professor who was in the Department of Psychology and his research program was at Yerkes Regional Primate Center, which was in Atlanta, affiliated with Emory. Um, and uh, I started doing my graduate work in non-human primate behavior, specifically hormonal influences on behavior. Took a, a while to do that, took me about six years to get through my doctoral training. But as I got to the end of that, and I'll say I was approaching age 30, I had a major reassessment of my life in general, made a bunch of major changes. But part of that reassessment process was thinking about myself at age 70, looking back on my career, thinking if I go off and I'm a professor and my life's work has been to understand why rhesus monkeys behave in a particular way given their hormones, I didn't think I was gonna be very satisfied or even kind of generally in that field. I, I realized I wanted to do something that was more applied that had more immediate impact. And that was just you know my own, my own preference for, I, I think that field is fascinating and important, but for myself, I wanted to do work that was more that I could feel like had a more immediate impact. So then it was like, ah, oh, but what? <laughs> That's when I went back in and got clinical retraining. So in the same psychology program at Emory University, they allowed me to continue to, to get clinical training. Um, so I did my clinical hours and my, my uh, clinical courses there, which then allowed me to apply for an American Psychological Association approved internship. And what I chose 
was based on, I had taken a class in community psychology, sort of clinical community psychology, and loved it and thought, wow, this is a way to change the world, is to, to really be thinking more about communities and public sector work and just a variety of things about it. And so the internship at Florida Mental Health, which is now called the Lewis Dillip Hart Florida Mental Health Institute, um, was a great fit for that. And that was the internship that I applied to and got into. Um, and that I, I had no idea when I applied what a great match it was really for my budding interests. Um, and when I got there, so you know, most people who go to their clinical psychology internship have maybe just recently completed their dissertation um, or they're, they're sort of completing it while they're doing their internship. I had completed my doctoral work while I was doing my clinical training. I'd actually done a postdoctoral fellowship, uh, which was in human infants and stress reactivity. <laughs> it was my first data collection with human beings. And so when I went to the Florida Mental Health Institute, Bob Friedman, who is a major leader in children's mental health, um, was there and I expressed a real interest in, in sort of child and family uh, mental health. And he just took me under his wing and said, let me show you what we do. Let me show you what the research is. Let me introduce you to people. It was, he was wonderful. He was just a, just a wonderful mentor. Um, and I had other mentors there, Krista Kutash, who was the deputy director. So they had an RRTC grant, very much like our learning and working during the transition to adulthood, RRTC grant. Um, and Krista was the deputy director of that. And she, did all kinds of mentoring on, on how to essentially run a research program and all those kinds of things. So I completed my internship there. And that was my real step into identifying because it was at, they are the ones who hosted that children's mental health conference in Tampa. And some of the investigators there, including Rusty Clark, who people may recognize as the person who developed the transitions to independent process system, the TIP system that is um, widely used um, to help uh, youth who are transitioning into adulthood with serious mental health conditions. Rusty was there. So lots of connections started there. Um, it wasn't then as a singular path. I continued to sort of try to find the right path for me. So I became interested in transition age youth there. But my first job um, out, of, out of internship was at a children's mental health, a nonprofit children's mental health agency in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I picked that for personal reasons because my then boyfriend and I had been split by our postdoctoral experiences. We had met in Atlanta, I went to Tampa, he went to Missoula, Montana. And we thought we'd like to live in the same state. <laughs> and he got uh, another postdoc uh, back in, in Boston in Cambridge. Um, and so I was looking for jobs there. Bob actually introduced me to Joan McCoola who was the head of children's mental health services for the Department of Mental Health here in Massachusetts. And Joan helped me get this job for this um, uh, children's agency that was a, a nonprofit who were interested in developing their research capacities. So I did that for a couple of years, but that was the place where once I saw that conference, I could really talk to adolescent providers who, who were the providers of the programs there about what they thought was going on with sort of the outcomes that young adults were experiencing when they exited children's services. And it, we actually had some data there. Uh, and I, they gave me a little bit of permission to do some, trying to contact some folks who had recently left their adolescent services who would have, as we called it, aged out. 
They reached age 18, which was the upper age limit for adolescent services, and they couldn't stay in that service any longer. And so I was able to, to do my initial piece of research, uh, just really organically developing out of talking with these providers. They had all kinds of ideas. They expressed their huge frustration with not being able to find these youth what seemed to be appropriate services for them to continue. They identified that uh, at that time, the adult mental health services criteria for being able to access those services were much, they were different and they were stricter. And for a lot of these uh, young folks who had been getting intensive, for some of these, they were in day programs or they were even in residential programs, they couldn't get them in the door of an adult service. And so they were doing care planning that was to try to help their families, even with this 18 year old, sometimes the family was involved, sometimes it wasn't, and, and help this young person try to find, cobble together something to help them. Um, and you know, hearing that story was just added this layer of, ah, oh, now I kind of understand a bit more about something that's probably contributing to what those studies showed in that, in that conference about why they were struggling. And that's essentially what sort of launched me into the work there. And then a faculty position opened up at our medical school um, and, uh, and I applied and was offered a, a, an assistant professorship and then had more of an appropriate place from which I could conduct broader research and develop a whole research program that focused on transition issues. And that, it, it completely captured me. Um, so that's wow. essentially what I built my research program in starting in 1995 and have continued up until now. Wow, that is an absolutely incredible, it really just went full circle. And there's a lot of things that you just captured in your whole experience. One, I definitely want to say, so this is incredible work to be doing in 1995 when I was just being born. I don't, I don't even know if I was born yet. So this is absolutely amazing to know that there was somebody focusing on that way back in the day, because now as a young adult, these are all the things that we talk about. I talk about it with my friends, you know, all the different transitions that we have to go through. Me now being 26, I'm a totally different person than, than I was at 18 years old, not knowing what to do. And I want to, I want to just really highlight something that you said you mentioned that you had gone for your first semester and then you had quit and that you had stopped. Can you elaborate a little bit more on like how you felt or what made you make that decision? Because I heard that you wanted to kind of find more of a focus of what you wanted to do, but what was that decision-making process like for you? So it was actually very painful. I've been a very good student in high school, athlete, all those kinds of things that people try to do. It came out of a place of trying to be a, a good daughter and a good girl, so to speak. Um, and the things that those students did was they went off to college. Um, and I had a personal experience in the summer just before starting college that really knocked me off of that self-identity. And I struggled through that first semester of college, uh, not academically, I was able to pull it together for that, but really kind of figuring out what was going on in my world, which included things going on with my family, things going on with my then boyfriend, all the things that we're in, often involved with at that stage in our lives. Um, and it was sort of a combination of family financial circumstances. Mm. And I wasn't feeling like school was what I wanted to be. I didn't really know what I wanted to be doing, but kind of continuing on that somewhat high stress path of trying to 
you know, get good grades. It really wasn't so much about learning as much as it was about getting good grades. I think, you know, part of that, I'll be honest, part of that whole getting knocked around, um, and I would say it probably started in the spring of my senior year. My dad lost his job. Uh, it became very difficult for the family. I have a sibling that had a, a real struggle with uh, mental health at that point. Just a whole lot of stuff happened in our family. And I didn't have any tools, any resiliency or coping tools to deal with it. And I had my own struggles with mental health that started at that point. Um, and I don't think I even knew that it was mental health that I was struggling with. I knew that by the time I quit college, I was feeling kind of numb. And my thinking was very... I don't know, filtered. It felt like there were, I felt like I was looking through a tunnel somehow um, and not, not seeing a lot of things. Um, and so, you know, I was really struggling with, um, and say, I probably had something more like dysthymia. I don't think it was like a major depressive disorder, but I was definitely very depressed and muted in my feelings and really super, super stressed. I mean, stepping yeah. off of that path was hard. I started to work full time. I worked, um, for a uh, grocery shipping company um, and uh, sort of learned a lot. Everybody who was there, most of the folks who were there had also started working right after high school. Um, you know, I learned a lot in just interacting with folks about different ways to be in life. Uh, I learned about ways I didn't want to be in life, had some experience mm -hmm. with that, um, which is all very challenging when you don't have very good coping skills. Um, so I, I feel very blessed that I was able to kind of put myself back on a track. I didn't seek any mental health support. Um, I was a little cut off from my family at that point. And actually friends from high school often, you know, they just didn't understand what was going on. I didn't have somebody to sort of share things with. So um, I was lucky that I managed to get myself sort of back on the path and probably by getting back on the path, it was helpful. Um, but I think yeah. part of why this work on transition age youth really resonated for me the first time I saw that research presentation was like, oh my God, you know, I can really see from my own experience and from my family's experience, how that last year of high school and that step off into the next steps can really be extraordinarily challenging. And can, if you already have mental health challenges, the stresses of that can be devastating. Um, and if you, may not even have them yet, they can really contribute to having real mental health struggles. So, so that is, this has always been a very personal field for me in a lot of ways. Thank you so much for sharing that and being very vulnerable with us and with the, with the audience. It really does capture what you felt was your passion in life and how you struggled through finding your way and trying different things that you thought you might like and maybe you didn't like, but keep going and keep pushing and just trying all the different things, which I think really resonates with a lot of us. Um, I mean, especially me, I'm in that age right now where I'm like, is this really what I want to do? I don't know half the time um, and really trying to work on those coping mechanisms. So thank you so much for sharing that. You did, you have already answered a couple of our questions here. <laughs> um, which is absolutely wonderful. Again, I feel like this is flowing very nicely. Um, one of the things that I wanted to kind of focus on is, can you explain, as we've talked a little bit about the transition age youth and the services and the lack of services that you saw, what exactly was it that was missing for you in the mental health services for transition age youth? Like, what were the needs you identified for this population? So, I, you know, I start off by just describing, you know, the experience of these 
providers that, that I was working with at the time. Um, I then worked with uh, somebody who'd been in the field for a while, Ann Vanderstoep, who wrote a paper sort of summarizing a little bit about sort of the developmental stage of being at the cusp of transitioning into adulthood and kind of what the research literature had already demonstrated about what folks would likely struggle with at this point and a little bit about those outcome findings into young adulthood. Um, and then that led to really starting to talk to more and more people, a relationship with Diane Sondheimer at uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, who also very early on became a very, very much a champion for services for transition age youth. But I think research-wise, um, I had some a little bit of funding from SAMHSA to survey states and try to find out, well, really, what are states doing to on the kids' side of things, help prepare young people for this imminent adulthood, and on the adult side of things, help them take on the mantle of adulthood. And at that point, it wasn't clear to me how much uh, children's systems and adult systems were split. Um, and, and for all I knew, there might have been states doing amazing work at that point. Um, so it was important to just do a, a survey of states and kind of the resources <laughs> that I had, which were not grand, but enough to make phone calls and pay for a little bit of my time, I was able to contact the head of children's mental health for the mental health authority. So every state mm. has a mental health authority. So I had to kind of get used to like how are mental health services organized in order to sort of understand the system, to understand why we were struggling with services for this age group that went across from childhood into adulthood. And so States have state mental health authorities. They are typically the authorities that deliver publicly funded mental health services for the entire age span. Um, and they're typically split into child services and adult services. So I contacted somebody who is at the top of the child mental health services at the state level and asked about sort of the lay of the land for what was being provided to prepare older adolescents for adulthood. Mm -hmm. And a little bit about what their experiences were in trying to connect them with services after they left the system. In that work, we discovered that about 75% of states offered something focused on preparing folks for that transition. They either did some transition planning or they had specific programs for older youth to try to bolster their education and prepare them for employment or something about independent living. They had done something, but they also uniformly talked about how disconnected they were from the adult mental health system, which was often housed in the very same agency. In some states, um, Connecticut is one of them, they have a consolidated children's agency that houses child welfare, juvenile justice, mental health, all in one agency. And then adult mental health services are in a completely different agency. In the majority of states, child mental health was in the same state mental health authority with the adult mental health services. So then after talking to the children's mental health systems, I then got a little more funding to say, well, let's ask about that other side. <laughs> what about adult mental health services? And that's kind of where things really became apparent that where we hadn't made progress at that point. So I was interviewing folks, that was back in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, and I was interviewing folks about their adult services. And a common response that I got to the entire topic was, Young adults can access any of our adult services. We don't, we serve all ages. So like, what's the deal? Why are you asking about this? 
Because I was asking about, do you have specific services to help young adults do things for the first time, like apply for a job for the first time, go to college for the first time, or get some further, any kind of other training, or live on their own for the first time? Yeah. Just a whole host of things that, that young adults are not as experienced as somebody in their 30s or 40s had. And very often the response was, well, you know, we have programs for adults with mental illness and, you know, they can probably get support around that for those. It's like, we don't discriminate. It's like, but by not recognizing the unique needs of young adults, it was very clear young adults would be encountering mostly more mature adults, people in their 30s and 40s and sometimes 50s, uh, if they were in a program with others. And so, you know, really, there were very few states that had any young adult programming whatsoever. Um, and there seemed to be a common theme of being really unaware. The, the other common theme about young adults then was they were hard to work with because they didn't follow the advice of their care manager or their clinician or they quit, you know, services. No. It's like, yeah, I wonder why that is. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it was very clear that on the adult side of things, um, there was this feeling that, you know, there was no need to do anything specific for young adults, but those young adults are pretty frustrating was kind of the overall. Take. Yeah. The other interesting connection was the child mental health system to the adult mental health system. If you talked about what the adult system was doing to coordinate with kids, the kids mm -hmm. system to, so that youth as they aged out of that system could access the adult system. There was this complaint that the children's system didn't prepare their older youth enough for adulthood. And so when they got there, they weren't functioning as fully mature adults. They didn't know how to make medical appointments. They didn't know how to keep appointments. They didn't know all these things that young adults didn't know. Mostly because they were young adults, not because <laughs> the, the kids' system hadn't necessarily prepared them. Right. You know, on the other hand, there was a legitimate concern that children's mental health systems weren't uniformly attending to the imminence of adulthood for, for this. Mm -hmm. But there was this feeling. And, and then the other theme that came through in these surveys or in, the, in these interviews was, you know, most of those youth served by the children's mental health system don't have serious mental illness. They have, and it was characterized in two ways, behavioral problems or really the problems were with their families. And it was this, so it wasn't, it wasn't serious mental illness. And it was a little offensive. Yeah. It's like, you don't have real mental illness. And, and, and the young people that do have real mental illness are the ones that we accept into our system that make our criteria. So that's where I kind of took some of my research next. I was like, let me understand this criteria and who's got a serious mental health condition. It's actually when I started using the term a serious mental health condition because the kid system used the term serious emotional disturbance, which I don't think anybody liked, but that was the thing that defined a serious mental health condition in those <laughs> under age 18, or a serious mental illness was for adults. And it's like just using those two terms made it seem like who the kid system was serving was not the same people that the adult system should be serving. Right. Start looking into that a little bit. Uh, Nancy Korloff and I did a study where we actually got the eligibility criteria or priority services criteria for child and adult public mental health services and lined them up. And, and it was clear that, that there, were, there were definitional differences. There were a wide variety of definitional differences. 
Uh, but there were also misperceptions. There were misperceptions that a serious mental illness was only a very small array of diagnoses. So the primary ones you can imagine were schizophrenia and related illnesses. Yep. At that point, we're on DSM-4, so major mood disorders. So major depressive disorders, bipolar disorder. Those were the biggies. It was primarily those, and those had to be very impactful on a person's life. Um, a lot of adult state agencies had this, uh, it was serious and persistent mental illness so that the criteria was a functional impairment and a diagnosable condition that was expected to uh, seriously impair functioning for at least two years. And then what got into that was primarily sort of psychotic based disorders and, uh, and affective disorders. Sometimes anxiety disorders got into it. PTSD was sometimes explicitly excluded, but the kids system had in some ways a very similar criteria. They also talked about the DSM diagnoses that were mental health and not only substance use or developmental disabilities or intellectual disabilities. And that was very similar to the language on the adult side, but what people thought of as those diagnoses was not because schizophrenia doesn't most typically occur before age 18. We've got a lot more young people who, when they have a diagnosis, it's more in the affective disorders or anxiety disorders, but also disruptive behavior disorders and ADHD. All of those were within the realm of who the public child mental health system served, particularly in the um, some of the anxiety disorders and in the, the disruptive behavior disorders and in ADHD and, and ADD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or attention deficit disorder. Those were diagnoses that the adult system didn't, literally, they had a list. Those were not on the list. So if you had oh. those as a kid, when you hit your 18th birthday, everybody knew you weren't going to be able to get into the adult system because that diagnosis didn't qualify you. Wow. And as we dug into that further, it turns out for social security, you see some parallels so at age 18, having ADHD at the time was not a qualifying condition for the basis of your disability when you were age on your 18th birthday. Wow. So, so there were these policy-based disconnects that were real barriers for a person who nothing has changed about them except their birthday. Right. And suddenly the parallel public system to the system that's been serving them could be saying, nope, sorry, you can't access any of our services. You don't qualify. Wow. So it was discovering, so it wasn't just that services weren't there, but the policies were a barrier and ended up, if you looked at most um, adult mental health systems, if you could look at the counts that they had by age, mm -hmm. they were serving a very small number of young adults and a much bigger uh, group of, of folks over the age of 30, let's say. And, you know, you can see that the policies were not helpful. If you were a young adult, and even if you qualified for adult services, you might go to that service and see a whole bunch of people in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Well, you got nobody else to hang out with. There's hardly anybody else there under the age of 30, right? So socially, yeah. it doesn't appeal. They weren't doing things that were like, hey, you're doing this for the first time. Let's help you do this. It was more like, all right, let's make sure you, like everybody's got their appointments, off you go, or yeah. whatever it was. They weren't developmentally appropriate. They weren't appealing. 
And so there were very few young adults that were accessing adult services unless they really had to. There was like nothing else Mm -hmm. out there for them. I mean, that's sort of a pessimistic, it was sort of the darkest sort of picture of what was going on. There were pockets of innovation that were going on at the time, Mm -hmm. but this was around, you know, between 2000, 2005. That's kind of what the systems look like. And while we say now, like there's still lots of problems, like there are not enough services that are really developmentally appropriate and appealing and effective and have, as I would say, research to show that they're effective for folks between the ages of, let's say, 16 and 29, it was worse then. I, so, I wish I could come up with a, a better word than wow, but this, <laughs> I mean, I mean, honestly, this is truly insightful to, to hear about you having this extremely unique perspective of being able to, to recognize, hey, I think there might be a disconnect between child services and then adult services and then being able mm-hmm. to explore for yourself, okay, what does that disconnect look like and, and what are the things that are contributing to that? I find it very interesting that you were mentioning with the adult services that they were saying, and I feel like I often say this with high school a lot, like that's my comparison is high school did not prepare me for college. It did not prepare me for the real world. And then college did not prepare me for the real world either. And then once I got into the real world, I still wasn't prepared for the real world. And I'm, I'm just, uh, figuring it out, but it's, you're right, a little bit pessimistic and a little bit disheartening to know that you can go to an adult services and hear them say like, well, we don't qualify ADHD as a, as a real diagnosis for an adult. You know what I mean? It was very invalidating mm-hmm. of that, but wow, just absolutely incredible that you were able to see that and then to be able to, to move on from there to be like, okay, what do we do to fix this? Yeah. Um, and it's, the, it's the joy of being a researcher. Honestly, identify yeah and then you get to ask more questions and try to use use the tools of a researcher to try to figure out solutions yeah I mean truly and I can hear it in your voice as you talk about it the passion that you still have for it and like obviously the audience can't see us right now but your smile (laughs) is huge it's huge and it's just so good to feel and to know that there are still people out there like you and like me and like others who are like we want to do something that puts good into the world and, and puts out support and help into the world because the world is just hard. It's just hard to to be alive and to figure your way out. And that leads me to um, one of our last questions before we kind of wrap up here. You mentioned a little bit earlier in the conversation about how you were thinking about when I'm 70 years old, what am I going to look back on? So that leads me to where are you now with your research and your thinking in this area? And what is the legacy that you'd like to leave behind from your life's work in this field? Oh, good heavens, Emily. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, I hope that the legacy that, so, so let me maybe go back and say, you know, that, so that was the early 2000s. There's still like another 20 years worth of work that happened after that. Right. Um, and you know, there was there were, there were some developments in the field. I would say Diane Sondheimer's success in finally get a, uh, getting a SAMHSA-based grant focused on transition age youth first occurred in 2002. So that built a set of communities that, that had funds to really focus on, as you coined the term, transition age youth, youth who are in the transition to adulthood. So, you know, that occurred. I would say in, in the next set of grants, there was nothing to finish up those. Those started in 2002, the end in 2006. There was uh, another small set of grants 
that occurred after that. And then in 2014, um, there was a much larger cohort of, of, of grants that went out. So she and probably Gary Blau um, were better able to start garnering some support around the, the need for this. That I hope that the research that I had done helped to feed the rationale for that. And in part of doing, of getting out there and doing, just that learning from folks trying to do this and from a perspective of youth voice, which also came in uh, to maybe not at that very earliest work, but certainly with the next set of grants that were funded, folks really started talking about peer mentors or peer coaches or peer supports. Um, that really took off there, um, which has so, I think, fundamentally changed the way that we think about these services and, and the way that these services are, are currently developing has really made a big difference. And, and that's not really research. I mean, there's some research around it, the Pathways to Positive Futures. Our RTC has done some really nice work around, around peers. We've done our own work around peer, peer interventions that has contributed, but really the, the momentum around that really came from once young people had a voice in what was going on, that voice led to let's do more peer interventions. And that has just really exploded, has been one of the best things that has come out of all of the funding that SAMHSA has put in around. And Gary Blau, um, in his great wisdom at the time, really started putting some funds into Youth Move, which was the first um, advocacy organization run for and by youth with serious mental health conditions. Uh, which has also, you know, grown exponentially over over these years. So we do actually hope to get somebody from Youth Move to come on this podcast at some point as well. Yeah, yep, wonderful, fantastic organization, um, and which has, you know, had its own evolutionary path of like figuring out what is it that they want to achieve and help others achieve, and there's trainings and just all kinds of things. So it's it's just a, a wonderful advocacy organization that completely did not exist um, prior to that. And had to carve itself out a different identity than what were the uh, more mature adult advocacy organizations, which had a very different feel for them. So, you know, in all kinds of different ways, um, you know, this is, as you know, this is a unique stage of life. And, you know, there are things that are going to work well for folks in this stage of their lives. And it's not uniform. The early stages of the transition are very different from the late stages of transition and being able to accommodate all of that, you know, it, it just, it, it's just uh, unique in, in our lifespan. Um, I also had opportunities to start to work with intervention developers. So since I'm not a clinical psychologist, I don't develop interventions myself, but I have found from my own career that I have very much wanted to use my capacities as a researcher to help support the development and testing of interventions that focus on this age group. So there are a variety of interventions. You know, they talk about it being 15 years, and unfortunately, that's been true. We've got some clinical trials uh, that NIH has funded that will soon be wrapping up in the next year and a half or so um, oh, wow. that we hope to really have, if the uh, results support it, it will be the first evidence-based practice to help young people who are between the ages of 16 and 26 who have a behavioral health condition that have been involved with the justice system, either the juvenile or the criminal justice system, to help essentially turn their lives around and move off into their young adulthood with uh, on a better path. It's called the multi-systemic therapy for emerging adults. 
And I've been uh, very privileged to work with Ashley Shado, who's the clinical developer of that, and her co-developer, Mike McCart, who are at Oregon Social Learning Center, to have been uh, partnered with them to do the research that, that is that long line of let's figure it out, let's test it out a little bit, let's gather some information, let's fix it. All right, now let's go forward with a stronger version and let's you know, put it in the real world and see how well it works. Um, so I'm proud of having been a part of that research and having done that research with Ashley and Mike. Um, and then I think you know the, our learning and working during the transition to adulthood, RRTC, is something that I'm very proud of, that we were really fortunate to have gotten the very first grant um, in that area. So in 2009, Nidler offered their first two Rehabilitation Research Training Center grants focused on transition age youth. They define as ages 14 to 30 with serious mental health conditions. We carved out rehabilitation research. And so it's not treatment. So the, kind of the dif difference is, you know, rehabilitation is kind of given what's going on in your life. How do we help you function as best you can? Uh, and, and then there are all those folks over there who can figure out how to maybe reduce some of the challenges of symptoms or whatever else. And so we were feeling like, you know, the, the crowning issue for young people at this stage of their life often is completing their education and training and launching their adult work life. Um, and so that was what we proposed for that initial was learning and working during the transition to adulthood. We started off with shaping that with input from young people. Um, and uh, you know, we proposed a series of research projects. We proposed some ways to try to share what we were learning and hear back from people in a knowledge translation kind of, of way that Marsha Ellison was in on from the very beginning and shaping uh, with, with all of her knowledge about that. Um, we invited other folks from other institutions that were doing interesting work that could feed our questions. Um, and we started working with young people. Um, and John Delman uh, was very gracious to, to work with us to help us figure out how to do that in the, the most positive way that we could. We made a lot of mistakes along the way. And I would say I'm proud of our team for being willing to always look at the, the errors that we were making or the problems or the challenges that, um, that we were facing and doing that well, doing that with genuine youth voice and involvement and you know, really valuing their lived experience and how that can shape the research questions that we ask, the methods that we use, the interpretation of those findings, and extremely importantly, finding a way to share that with other young people with lived experience for the pieces that come out that are valuable for them in their lives. Um, and that all started in 2009. Um, and this wonderful team that we've, that we've built that we have now, I'm extremely proud of the work that, that we do, that we've continued to do it and really figure out always better and better ways to do it in partnership with young people. Um, now we're involving family members in a way that we hadn't initially. Um, we've got uh, many of the young people who are in our research and training center as research staff have moved on to get their own advanced training, which is just amazing. You always wanna be able to do that, but that actually brings people with lived experience in as 
colleagues, as researchers, as faculty members as well, which is also just wonderful. So, you know, I, I think that that legacy, I'm proud, I can say I'm proud of at this point in my life. You know, so looking back, I'm not there at 70 yet, but I feel much better about this than I would have about having solved um, some, you know, critical aspects of primarily monkey sex or, <laughs> or, or sex-related behaviors in non-human primates. Um, and I, even if I'd moved off to the postdoc I was considering was with whales and going to Hawaii, <laughs> another social species that- That doesn't even understand. surprise me at all about you. <laughs> Not even a little bit. <laughs> so I could say I turned down go, trying to go to Hawaii for, for pursuing, uh, you know, something more blatantly related to our life as human beings in this world. Um, and I've absolutely been very grateful to my younger self for having made this choice, not that choice. Wow. I mean, just absolutely fascinating, incredible, a truly amazing journey that you've shared with us today. Um, and you know what? Thinking about that, what this is going to be the last question that I ask you, and this is not on okay. the script, so I'm going to throw it right on you. What advice would you give yourself now at 18 if you could go back and talk to yourself? Oh, wow. Oh, first one would be be kinder to yourself. I think that would be the first and foremost, because that would have allowed me to, I think, probably ask for help, recognize that help would have been needed, that it wasn't wrong, or at the time, weak. I perceived it as weak, a weakness. I think being kinder to myself would have been the, the biggest advice. And then the other piece was to not, or to turn it more positively, have the courage to try different paths. I would have said to myself, you are capable of doing many different things and finding joy in them. I think, I think had I had faith in that, so much of life would have been easier, but maybe I wouldn't have been here. That's true. I am a firm believer that everything happens for a reason um, and that there is a reason for everything, whether you can see it or not. Well, thank you so much, Marianne, for taking the time to be on the podcast with us, to be our very first episode and to share such an incredible journey with us and, and be very vulnerable. Um, are there any last minute questions that you have at all? I can't think of any last minute questions. I'm really excited about this podcast and, and I can't wait to hear the other guests that you're going to have on. You guys have all kinds of wonderful plans that I can't wait to, to be listening to be a podcast follower. Um, yeah, and and I truly feel very honored to have been your very first guest on this. It's a, oh. it's a wonderful, wonderful honor to have been. So I, I thank you. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Um, alrighty, folks. So that is the end of our podcast for today. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, stories that you want to share, if you'd love to be on this podcast, please reach out to us at stay tuned at umassmededu. Stay is in all capitals and T is also capitalized. And you can reach out to us as well at the Transitions to Adulthood Center for Research website with UMass Chan Medical School. Have a great day, everyone.